Let's give attention to God's word. We're looking at the, the last commandment of the 10, 10th commandment, Exodus 20, verses, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you take your word now and that it would not return void, that we would not blow this off as minor, but this is massive, for this is the very command that has converted so many people, including the Apostle Paul. And so we pray that, Lord, it would drive us to you afresh this day, that we would see that we are hopeless to fix this problem and that we would look beyond ourselves to fix it and that our eyes would look and see Jesus and what he has done for us already at the cross. Speak loudly to us, Holy Spirit. May we listen in Jesus' name, amen. So if you recall a few months ago, it's been a while. I was, uh, we preached through the 10 commandments and we didn't finish. And so Porter's been preaching on Philippians, and the whole book is really about contentment and joy. So you've really been hearing about the Tenth Commandment in a roundabout way all summer. I think this is the most important commandment of the Ten because it's so clearly an internal commandment. J.I. Packer, in his little commentary on the Ten Commandments, he says, the Tenth Commandment moves from actions to attitudes, from motions to motives from forbidden deeds to forbidden desire. And if you think of fireworks, when you go to see fireworks, you always like the end because there's a grand finale, there's a crescendo. And this commandment is really building up, many believe, you know, there's a crescendo, and if you really want to know how to love your neighbor, boom, the, the grand finale kicks in, it's the 10th commandment. And it's a dagger that reveals what is wrong with the human heart. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, and then the catch-all, anything that's your neighbor's. And three times it mentions your neighbor because we compare ourselves to other people. And coveting is something that we really greatly struggle with, isn't it? I mean, imagine if I had a new toy here this morning and we had this new toy and I only had one. And let's all go down to the twos and threes room, and I will present the toy to one child, the newest toy that nobody else can play with. How long would it take before the 10th commandment became a violation of the 8th commandment and coveting turned into stealing? Give it back! He took my toy! I mean, it doesn't take long. Porter already read to us Romans 7 this morning. The passage that broke Paul in two. Here was an upright, morally righteous Jew who despaired of his own righteousness before God. Hear the passage again from a different translation. This is the New Living Translation. Paul says, I would have never known that coveting was, is wrong if the law hadn't said, do not covet. But sin took advantage of this law and aroused all kinds of forbidden desires within me. You're going to struggle more with coveting this week because I'm preaching this. 
Because your sinful heart is going to reveal to you, and there's going to be a jujitsu. The law, which is good, is meant to bring out something good. But your hearts and my hearts are going to produce a rebellion. And we're going to wrestle. Now, the good news of this jujitsu is, is if you're God's child or God is at work in you by his spirit, soon to be his child, the jujitsu will work again. And it will drive you so low and you'll be so broken that you clicked on some link you should have never clicked on, that you watched something you should have never watched, you coveted something you shouldn't have had. And it would drive you to Jesus. That's what happened to Paul. He said, who can deliver me, this wretched, this wretched man of sin, but thanks be to God, God saved him. The jujitsu is that God actually used the law to drive us down so low that we would look up and find our help in Jesus. The Romans 7 account, there's, as you think about the fullness of Scripture, kind of the gospel version of coveting of Romans 7 is the rich young ruler. And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments in Mark 10. Do not murder, that's number six. Do not commit adultery, number seven. Do not steal, number eight. Do not bear false witness. Do not fraud, number nine. Honor your father and mother, number five. Which one's missing of the second table of the law? And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, the rich young ruler reasoned that his treasures on earth were greater than treasures in heaven. And therefore, he would be trading down to give up his possessions to get Jesus. And therefore, it was not a good deal for the rich young ruler to do this, and so he's never to be heard from again. He makes an eternally wretched choice. When you consider the problem, I want us to look at the, the problem of coveting, first half of the message, but the second half is the solution. How do we move from coveting to full contentment? And how do we get this, if only I had this? This spouse that would treat me better, if I only had this promotion, if I only had this car, if I only had a little bit more money, if I only had a child, if I could only be retired, if I could only have the geothermal, or I could only have the solar panels, if I could only have natural gas, I mean, if I could only have my neighbor's countertops, if I could only, I mean, on and on and on it goes. Are you telling me then that all desires are bad? Some of you are probably thinking that. What's the difference between desire and coveting? And if I do covet a little bit, what's the big deal? What's wrong with a little coveting? I've heard men justify their lust as married men by saying, it's okay to look at the menu as long as you don't order. You ever heard that jingle before? Well, is that true biblically? And if not, we should never entertain that, and we should rebuke that when we hear it. Because Jesus actually said that's the problem. So in answer to the first question, are all desires bad and what's the difference between desire and coveting? Francis Schaeffer takes this up, I mean, word for word in true spirituality because he knows people are asking the question. And so he says, does this mean that any desire is coveting and therefore sinful? The Bible makes plain that it's not so. All desire is not sin. 
So then the question arises, when does proper desire become coveting? I think we can put the answer down simply. Here it is. Desire becomes sin when it fails to include love of God or men. Further, I think there are two practical tests as to when we are coveting against God or men. First, am I to love God enough to be contented? And number two, am I to love men enough not to envy? And then there's a further test, he says, the simple test. He says, natural desires have become coveting against a fellow creature, one of a kind, a fellow man, when we have a mentality that would give us a secret satisfaction at his misfortune. I mean, I had just waxed my car yesterday because I wanted this thing to last. And we were driving to church this morning. I said to Karis, there is a car that looks nicer than ours. It's brand new, you know, just a beautiful, beautiful, shiny car. And she said, but it's got a scratch in it. And I, I, th- I felt better as soon as she said that. <laughs> and there it is. I'm like, there it goes. That's the second test. You see, if we have a secret satisfaction at his misfortune... If a man has something and he loses it, do we have inward pleasure, a secret satisfaction at his loss? Are you secretly glad when your friend in school gets a D that always gets an A, but now that they finally got what you get, you actually rejoice at their downfall? You see, that's wickedness. That's something's wrong with the heart. You see, coveting is what causes that twinge of disappointment. When somebody else gets what we want, when that coworker gets the promotion that you didn't get, when your roommate finds romance and we're still single, when your friend goes on that dream vacation and you stayed home, or you're trying to have a child and now they're expecting. We don't like that. And that actually reveals the heart. So the, the theological tradition behind this desire is there's, there's kind of four steps. And we, we get some of that from James 1, 14 and 15, which says when each person is tempted, and temptation isn't necessarily sinful, is it? Jesus was tempted. Did he sin? No. So, but each person is tempted when he's Lord and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it's conceived, now we've moved to a whole different stage of desire, gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown, now we've gone to another step, brings forth death. So there's four steps that theologians have discussed, and here they are, and it's in John Frame's book on the doctrine of the Christian life. It goes from spontaneous desire, all of a sudden, boom, something just hits you out of the blue. You know, Tom's saying, you know, the car came to church, there it was, the dream car, I've always wanted that car, and now, of all people, Brian, who's a young whippersnapper, he's driving that thing in his first job, and I've been working 40 years and I don't have one. I mean, I'm sure that's what, you know, that's what I'd be thinking. Not that I ever think that way. So the spontaneous desire catches you off, off guard, and then, but then you begin to nurse the desire. You see, now, now we're moving towards sin, making a plan to achieve that desire and accomplishing the desire. So here are a few biblical reasons why this is so bad. Look at the history in the scripture of what coveting gives birth to. Think about this. What does coveting give birth to? Well, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She coveted it. 
what was forbidden. And she took of its fruit and ate. And that's kind of the repetitive refrain, is they take it. Once you want something, you eventually take. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And they realized how much good they had given up and how much evil they had gained. And they had knowledge of good and evil, all right, something they never wanted. With Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7, and you remember we studied that with Vacation Bible School, and Achan, he's been Achan ever since is the joke. Well, Achan, he, the, the ban was you're not to take anything. The whole thing is dedicated to God. But when he said, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of gold and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. Or as the Good News Bible says, I wanted them so much that I took them. And that was the end of him and his family. In Micah chapter 2, the wicked are described, and it says they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. Do you see what coveting is giving birth to? How about David? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And they said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your 30 mightiest men? But David saw what he wanted. And he sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And boy, does 2 Samuel take a turn for the worse from then on in his life. Anybody remember what happened to Jezebel and Ahab's neighbor? Next door neighbor, Naboth? Naboth, all he had was a vineyard, but he was a next door neighbor to Ahab, who was the king of Samaria. And after this, the Bible says in 1 Kings 21 that Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. There's a good reason. Because it's near my house and I'm the king. And I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Not going to do it. And so he has a big pity party. He's not, he, he goes to his bedroom, and he is bowing to self-pity shrine. It's a big one. And, and his wife comes and says, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in, with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the table and set two worthless men opposite him and let him bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And that's exactly what happened to Naboth. Stoned to death on trumped up charges, also that Ahab could have his vineyard. To sum it up, you may not be taking somebody's vineyard, but you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We have little fights. We call them disputes. And we often we have to settle these in court. But the root behind it is this covetous heart. I heard a story on the radio this summer. I think it might have been David Jeremiah. It's on WAVA. Maybe you heard it. I'm not sure if it's a true story. I hope it's not. The story goes like this. 
There were two older men, and they both were seriously ill, and they occupied the same room in a rehab center in a nursing home. The one man was next to the window, and the other man wasn't. And the one man who was sitting next to the window would sit up in his bed for an hour each afternoon to receive his daily medical treatment. And so every afternoon when the man would be propped up in his bed and they'd work on him, he would pass the time by by describing to his roommate, who didn't have the window, all the things that he could see outside the window. And he began to tell him about the park with the beautiful lake and how the ducks and the swans, how they played on the water and children even sailing their model boats and young lovers holding hands and walking amongst a myriad of every color of flowers under the rainbow or like the rainbow, grand old trees gracing the landscape and a fine view of the city skyline. And at first, the man who was listening to these things being described in vividly, vivid detail, he would close his eyes and imagine this picturesque scene, but his desire morphed into jealousy and coveting and a settled resentment of resentment is what it was, that he could not see this for himself he longed to have the bed with the window. And so one warm afternoon, the man by the window described a parade passing through the park. And as he described the park in vivid details, inwardly the man on the other side listened, but envy was rotting his bones. Proverbs 14:30. And then one night in the middle of the night, the man by the window began to violently choke and he couldn't breathe. And the other man wrestled with his decision. Am I gonna ring the bell or am I gonna wait it out? He wanted the window and he knew if he rang the bell for help, he would never get the window and he might die before his neighbor in the other bed. And so he tried to cover his ears and silence his conscience as the long-awaited window would soon be his. The nurse came in a few hours later and the man was dead. He couldn't be revived. And while they were moving him out, the man asked the nurse his simple request, can you move me to the corner? Can I have the window? She was glad to oblige and she moved him over to the window. And when he popped himself up with his elbow so he could finally look outside, to his horror, he discovered it was a brick wall. And he screamed in horror for the nurse to come, brought her in and, and said, how could this man have done this? He's described all these incredible things to me and they're not even here. And she said, did you not know he was blind? He couldn't even see. And he said, why would he do such a thing? She said, well, maybe he just did that to encourage your spirits. Do you see how coveting leads down this slippery slope that lacks love for neighbor? and slowly breeds deadly desires if left unchecked. And so what's the solution, friends, to dethrone this and to replace it with a full contentment? We have to take sin seriously. Kim was over at the Stewarts recently, over by their office, and she was retelling to Julie a story about, I think we have a mouse in the house. A mouse in the house. And Julie said, well, you know what Jim always says? And Jim's not here, they're in a way this weekend, but you can recall this to Jim and just tell him you got a mouse in your house. See what he says. This is what Jim always says. He has little isms. Jim says, you don't have a mouse, you have mice. 
She said, so Julie told Kim that, and sure enough, Jim came right down the stairs after this, and, and Kim told Jim the same story, and Jim said, you don't have a mouse, you have mice. Now, what do you do if you have mice in your house? Do you open the doors to let them out? Do you cut off the food supply? What do you do to get rid of mice? You do one simple thing. You have to kill them. You won't let your house be overrun. That's just a mouse. Well, the Bible says to us, make every effort. You don't just have a little coveting thought. It is big. When the Bible says make every effort, it doesn't say make no effort or make little effort. When it comes to covetousness, lust, sinful desires, the Bible is clear. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Why do you need to put these things to death? Because the next verse tells us, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you want to get out of the way of that. And so we pray. We take up these means of grace, of making effort. We have to make effort. And I'm convinced laziness is a big problem. And we don't make the effort. But we also must pray, just as the psalmist prayed. Psalm 119, 36 and 37, incline my heart or bend my heart to your testimonies. Bend this heart around your testimonies and not to selfish gain, not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at these futile, vain, worthless, trivial things and give me life, revive me in your way. And then we have to remember whose we are and who we belong to. Who are you this morning? I mean, Paul writes very clearly, I testify that you must no longer walk as the nations do or as the Gentiles do. They walk in the futility of their minds, the emptiness that we just prayed against. This futility, they're darkened in their understanding. It's affected their minds. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. Do you see what coveting does? It creates this hardness of heart. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It always wants more, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him <coughs> and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, here's what we're to do. Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt, present tense. It's still there, folks, through deceitful desires or lying lust and were to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then as the means of grace continue, <coughs> we have to worship. We have to change what we're worshiping. Worship changes us. Tim Keller, the best quote from his book on prayer, I think, is right here. He says, we are what captures our imagination. As a man thinketh, so he is. I mean, if you think about video games, and I just can't wait to get this new video game, what does that say about your life? The worth of a soul is what it set its affection upon. So what is your soul set upon? That will tell you the worth and value of what your life is worthy of to be lived for. 
That's the value of a soul. We are what captures our imagination, what leads us to praise and compels others to praise it. Our inordinate anger, anxiety, and discouragement result from disordered loves. Our relational problems, what's wrong with my marriage? Well, it's from disordered loves. And our social and cultural problems as well. What can re-engineer, realign our very inner being, the structure of our personality? What can create healthy human community? Answer, worship and adoration of God. We must love God supremely, and that can only be cultivated through praise and adoration. Do you take time to praise him? Do you say, man, I'm really busy. I don't have much to do today. I better stop and worship or my day is really going to be run amok. And I'm going to be covening big time. I know by 3 p.m. today, I'm going to be fixated on something I shouldn't be. So I better just take time now and worship the king. I think we think we're too busy to do something that trivial. And it's just the opposite. So here's a couple of things that might help us this morning. As we think about how do we worship and what's going to win our affections and, and dethrone this covetousness and enthroned contentment. It's remembering that we already have everything in Jesus. You see, Jesus is a better savior than we could ever imagine. J.R. Tolkien called the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he called that resurrection a catastrophe, The greatest catastrophe possible, in fact. That is, the resurrection was a catastrophic event, but a good catastrophic event. Or to be more precise, a catastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb, like your shoulder, was out of joint. It just went back and suddenly snapped back. That's what happened at the resurrection, folks. As G.K. Chesterton picks up on that, he says, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak at the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. What was the new wonder? But even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and a new king. And in the semblance of the gardener God walking again in the garden, in the cool not of the evening, but of the dawn, is Jesus. And he's making all things new. And we're longing for this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, but it's begun now. And so you have everything in Christ. So press on pilgrims. Pilgrims. We're pilgrims. We're almost there. So why would you stop? We're not home yet. And so you don't have to have everything that everybody else has or the one thing that you think you need to have or that God has withheld for his sovereign good purposes to make you look up to him and cling to him and to keep you pressing on in your journey. Let's reflect on that as we come to this feast this morning. It's a little taste of the feast in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we know it's true. And so may it now sink deep from the mind to the overflowing of the heart that we would love you and that our love for you would be so much greater than the things of this world. 
May we see what's really important. Give us perspective. Give us zeal and love for you to realign everything else, all these competing things, to put them in their place. Meet us now at your table, we ask. Thank you that you're here in Jesus' name. Amen.